This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to identify your sins to God in silent prayer and to uh, make sure that you are filled with the Spirit, ready to study the Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to gather together this morning to fellowship around the teaching of your word. Thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation, that we can meet together, that we can freely teach your word, that we can freely study your word and talk about these ideas, because there are those who have been willing to fight and to make the supreme sacrifice in order that we might have our freedom. Father, we continue to pray for our national leaders for our president, for those who are leaders in the military and in government, that they might make good decisions. We pray that you would bring to the attention of our security forces the information they need to make good decisions to relevant to our security. Ultimately, we know that no matter what our technology is, no matter how adept or trained our security forces are, that our security is dependent upon you. You are working all things after the counsel of your will, and you are working out your plan in human history. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we continue our study in Revelation. We pray that you would guide and direct our thinking, help us to understand and appreciate the significance and the impact of the things that we study for our own life today. We pray that we would be challenged by the things we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 1. We'll continue our study of the first verse. We live in a time when prophecy is a big seller. If you didn't know that, let's take a look at the cover of this last week's Newsweek magazine, dated May 24, 2004. On the front cover, you have a picture of of, uh, Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye, and the headline reads, The New Prophets of Revelation, why their biblical left-behind novels have sold 62 million copies and counting. It's an interesting article in here about uh, the impact of prophecy, and it gives some information about the authors and their backgrounds and different things. I thought it was interesting. The author twice commented on the fact that that uh, uh, Tim LaHaye's emphasis is really on evangelism, and twice at least two times in the well, at least two times in the article, he makes a point that uh, Tim LaHaye tried to uh, convert him, tried to make sure he understood the gospel, took the opportunity, took advantage of the opportunity to, to witness to the uh, writer of this piece. A couple of things we ought to note in here, I thought was interesting. They had a little Newsweek poll. That gave, to gauge Americans' opinions on the book of Revelation in the end times. This is on page 48. And there they say that according to their Newsweek poll, 36% of Americans, that would include believers and unbelievers, just 36% believe that the book of Revelation contains true prophecy. 47% say it's metaphorical. That would be symbolic. So apparently approximately a third 
believe that Revelation contains literal prophecy. 55%, I'm amazed by this number, 55% think that the faithful, I don't know why they use that term, the faithful, I guess maybe that betrays a Catholic background or something. They never talk about believers or Christians, they always call them the faithful. Sounds like a work salvation to me. Think that the faithful will be taken up to heaven in the rapture. Well, that's really, you know, now that I think about that, that's poorly written. Taken up in the rapture in a pre-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, or post-trib rapture? Did they define it? Everybody I know believe that believes will go up in a rapture of some sort. 74% of Americans believe that Satan exists. And among evangelicals, the number increases to 93%. I wonder if that means that that includes the Democrats who think that George W. Bush is Satan. Okay, and 17% believe that the end of the world will occur in their lifetime. So that's just a little picture postcard snapshot of, of, of Americans. But what I found interesting was following the seven or eight page article on the phenomena of the Left Behind series, which has outsold every secular writer that makes the uh, New York Times bestseller list, they, have a, they show their real agenda in the next article. It's called Apocalyptic Politics, Ties That Bind. Bush and LaHaye have a history and share a sense of mission. See, what they're doing here is in a subtle way saying that we have to watch out for Bush because he is influenced by this apocalyptic vision of the end times, and he's going to get us into Armageddon if we don't watch out. You have to—I mean, that's that. You have to read between the lines, but that's what they're saying. Those of you who are old enough to remember know that they did the same thing to President Reagan back in the 80s. He had read *Late Great Planet Earth*, and he was clearly—I think, from what I've read—clearly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they accused him of being influenced by Hal Lindsey's apocalyptic. Agenda, And so our current generation is influenced by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. So the problem with Bush is he's focused on the Middle East because he's being influenced by this horrible Christian evangelicalism and, fa- and dispensationalism. And I wrote in an article about 20 years ago that the problem with, with, and if you read some literature, every problem in America back to 1850 is a result of dispensationalists. So we're the bad guys, evangelical, fundamentalist, dispensationalists. Those who believe in a literal interpretation of Revelation are really the bad guys. We're going to develop this self-fulfilling prophecy and bring on Armageddon, so we're dangerous. So we have to watch out for that. We're continuing our introduction to uh, the book of Revelation today. And the main theme in Revelation is the resolution of human history. In this, we have the resolution of the angelic conflict, the judgment of the human race, and ultimately angels for sin, and the resolution of all sin, suffering, and evil in human history. In a nutshell, what Revelation portrays for us is the consequences that come to those who rebel against God, to those who reject His Word, to those who are influenced by the world system, which we call the cosmic system with a K, based on the Greek word cosmos, which doesn't just refer to uh, the universe, but is a term that refers to the systematic, uh, the system of thinking that characterizes Satan's rebellion against God. And what we see in the book of Revelation is what happens, what the Inevitable consequences are of that kind of thinking and people who give in to that kind of thinking, that it is uh, self-destructive because eventually there will be judgment. And that is the theme of Revelation, not just judgment on the earth during the time of tribulation, not just judgment at the great white throne judgment, but you also have the the beginning of the book, You have an emphasis in the seven letters to the seven churches, a warning that believers will be evaluated in heaven. 
And we know that's the judgment seat of Christ. So Revelation 2 and 3 is a call to the church to wake up and to be aware of the fact that we too are going to be evaluated, not with reference to salvation. Salvation is a free gift. Salvation is based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. At the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins. So the evaluation that we go through at the judgment seat of Christ is not on our sins. It is on our spiritual growth, our spiritual maturity, and is related to our ultimate responsibilities to rule and reign with Him. And we will see that very clearly as we go through our study of each of those letters, and then we'll put them together in one uh, one complete study. So Revelation is a warning to all of us that there will be an evaluation. I always remember the words of, of a very famous sermon uh, some hundred plus years ago by a Baptist pastor by the name of R.G. Lee. It was called Payday Someday. See, that will always stick with you. There is evaluation. Now, there's a lot of believers who don't think there's going to be much of an evaluation, and they just think that we're just going to live our life, and they have a very shallow view of ultimate rewards. We'll all get the same rewards. We'll all get the same resurrection body. We'll all have the same position in heaven. It's sort of the uh, uh, Lenin Marxist view of the eternal kingdom. We'll all end up with the same thing. It doesn't matter how we live on earth today. But that is not what is taught in the Scriptures. So we are continuing our study of Revelation, which is the only book in the New Testament which is primarily prophetic. There are 404 verses in Revelation, and 323 of them are prophetic. They have to do with what will take place in the future. And we begin our study a couple of weeks ago by looking at the overview of the book. This is given in Revelation 119, Write therefore the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. A key word, a key concept also in this book of Revelation is the concept of visions. There are seven visions in the book. We'll study those eventually. But it's an emphasis on what is seen. You have two different Greek words that are used. You have the uh, Greek verb adon, which is used 56 times. Greek word blepo used 13 times. And these words have to do with sight or with seeing, with looking at something. And that concept is also present in a key verb in the first verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. And that idea has to do with to reveal, to bring, to sight, to enlighten. So the idea here is that John is Something is revealed to John, it is disclosed to John, he sees certain things, and these are recorded for us. The basic divisions have to do with that which is past, that which is present, and that which is future. Chapter 1 deals with the past, the things which John has already seen, that is what took place when Jesus Christ appeared to him while he was on the Isle of Patmos. The second division in the book, chapters 2 and 3, deals with the seven letters to the seven churches. This gives us the trends of history in the church age, the trends related to local churches. And then in chapters 4 through 22, this is future events, the things which shall take place after these things. This covers the three major uh, eschatological events, the tribulation in chapters 4 through 19, the Millennial Kingdom in chapter 20, and the Eternal State in chapters 21 and 22. Last time we began with the first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. And then the second part of the sentence is in the next verse, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. We won't make it to the second part in verse 2. Now, one of the key things that you must do in exegesis is identify what the main clause is in any 
in any particular verse. And in this is a classic example of a verse that extends beyond one, uh, one, I mean a sentence that extends beyond one verse. And so we have to identify the main verb, the main subject and main verb, because that gives us the main idea of the passage. And the main pa- thought here is that God gave him, the him there refers to Jesus Christ, God gave him the revelation to show to his bondservants. This is the main idea. God has disclosed this information to us for a purpose. We saw that last time that part of the purpose is to motivate us because we understand where history is going and we understand our role and position in the future. And if we begin with the end in mind, then that will motivate us to persevere and just remain steadfast in the midst of testing. This is a major theme that we'll find in both of the chapters dealing with the seven letters uh, to the seven churches. Now, the epistle begins with the phrase, the revelation. This is the Greek word apocalypsis. And I looked at it last time because this word means to unveil, to disclose, to bring to light something that is unknown. And the word apocalypsis has come over in transliteration into English and is sometimes used as a classification of a certain type of literature. But this is not apocalyptic literature. You read this terminology in almost all the literature. Uh, most of you won't run into that, but those who are out there going to seminary, going to Bible college, something like that, are going to get run into this in their uh, hermeneutics classes. And uh, apocalyptic literature is a secular genre or category of literature that really has its roots in, in Persian literature and other ancient Near Eastern literature, it began to influence uh, some, some Jewish writings, and you have various um, apocryphal works written between the Old Testament and the New Testament that picture this end-time struggle between good and evil. It's characterized by a lot of things that happen with uh, angelic forces, the battle between uh, the holy angels and the evil angels, visions, all of this kind of thing. And so a lot of people want to classify this book with that kind of literature. And that kind of literature is very uh, cryptic. It's very symbolic. You don't use a literal interpretation necessarily. And so the danger that happens when you classify Revelation as apocalyptic literature is that you use a wrong hermeneutic, a wrong principle of interpretation. The book is often referred to in context as a prophecy. As such, it fits other prophetic books in the Bible, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, the Minor Prophets. These are books that also should be interpreted on the basis of a plain, literal, uh, historical, grammatical principle of interpretation. It is something that is written to be understood. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, last time I pointed out that we have this phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in English, as well as Greek, that could imply two different ideas, two different concepts. And this really is important to understand because of some things that are going on in terms of interpretation at other levels. We live in in an extremely interesting, but also a sad time in history. Because at the conclusion of 2,000 years, people have invented all kinds of sophisticated intellectual systems to reinterpret the Bible so it doesn't mean what it means. And so nobody has a clue as to what it means. And we live in an age influenced by postmodernism, which says you really can't know anything for sure. That's an agnostic element in postmodernism. Everybody has their own truth. You have your truth. They have their truth. All truths are ultimately equal. And so what's happening at the seminary level and what's happening at the scholarly level with with an evangelicalism is you often get people uh, teaching in the way that, well, you have five different views, eight different views. We really don't know because you have good godly scholars in each camp All you can know is what the various interpretations are, but you can't know anything for sure. 
And at the very core of that idea is something that is blasphemous to God. It impugns God's ability to clearly and sufficiently reveal to mankind what His plans and purposes are in a way that we can know it with certainty and where we can rely upon it. And this little phrase just represents the kind of thing that goes on today. Uh, The revelation of Jesus Christ is a genitive clause. Jesus Christ is in the genitive case in the Greek, and that's usually clued in English by either an apostrophe S or the use of the preposition of, indicating usually like ownership or relationship, possession, something like that. Well, in a phrase like this, you have a noun, revelation, which is a noun that describes action to reveal something. Love is also a noun of action. You love somebody, that's a verb. But love, if you talk about love, that's a noun, but it's a noun that describes an action. Faith is also a noun of action. You believe something, that's an action. But you talk about faith, so that becomes a noun of action. Well, when a noun of action is followed by a genitive, it can either direct that action toward the genitive noun or it can be from the genitive noun. So if it's toward the genitive, that's called an objective genitive, like a direct object following a verb. See, it takes you, grammar is important. It takes you back to junior high. Some of you are zoning out already. And a subjective genitive, that means that the noun in the genitive is viewed as performing the action. For example, we have the phrase love of God. Well, in some places that means love for God. And in some places, it means God's love for us. You have to look at the context to determine it. Now, an influence, a very subtle influence of the kind of thing that happens in postmodernism is that one Greek scholar from down at Dallas Seminary has come along and said, well, let's solve the problems. You can't really tell which it is. For example, in this phrase, you could make a case, and some people have, that the book of Revelation is all about Jesus Christ. It it leads up to his glorious appearing in Revelation 19, the establishment of the kingdom in chapter 20, and the eternal state in chapter 21 and 22. So this is the revelation about Jesus Christ. Well, that's true. You could make a case that, that that's the interpretation. Also, you could say, well, I can see that the other is true as well, that this is Christ's revelation. This is what he is giving us. Well, maybe both are true. So one, one scholar came up with a new category of the genitive called a plenary genitive. He said they're both true. It's revelation about Christ. It's revelation that Christ gave. Trouble with that is that the principle of interpretation is something can mean one and only one thing at any given time. It can't mean both. It can't mean two opposite things at the same time. So we have to decide. Even though both are true, context is going to tell us which John had in mind. And it becomes clear that, that it must be understood as revelation, Christ's revelation or the revelation that Christ gave. He is the revealer throughout this book. He reveals the message to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. It is Christ who opens the scroll which reveals the three series of divine judgments uh, in chapter 5. He then discloses the, cons- the contents of that scroll in chapter 6, verses 1, 3, 5, 7, and 9, and in 8, 1. So he is the one doing the revealing. Furthermore, in this first verse, we see that the revelation of Jesus Christ, revelation is the subject of that, preposi- that, that genitive clause, so we'll just say the revelation, which God gave him. Gave who? Gave Jesus to show to his bondservants. Well, it's clear John is a bondservant. At the end of the verse, he communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. So it's clear that the revelation is something that God gave to Jesus to show John and other believers. That tells us that we must understand it as something that Jesus Christ is giving. <coughs> now let me show you a danger in this, in this genitive thing that's going on today that really bothers me. There's a popular translation of the Bible that's out now called the uh, N, 
I think the uh, NET Bible, the New English Translation. And, of course, it's available electronically. It's available on the Internet. And this is something that that uh, uh, has become very popular, popular, especially with people who would like to know a little Greek or who are enchanted with the languages or just know enough Greek to become dangerous. And that is because that in this Bible there are extensive translator notes as to how to deal with various things, uh, various translation problems in the original languages. For someone who has good training, uh, it can be helpful. I find it helpful to show me where the problems are and what some of the solutions are that they come up with. I usually find I don't agree with a lot of it, or in some places. And this is one of them in a passage in Galatians 2.16. We read, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, that is a way most of you memorize this, and you've always heard it. That we're not justified by the works of the law, but we're justified by faith in Jesus, where the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. But literally in the Greek, this is a genitive clause. Literally, it could be translated... We're justified through faith of Christ. Now see, that has, now you have to interpret it. Is this a subjective genitive, Christ's faith, or is it an objective genitive, faith toward Christ? Now, traditionally, this verse has been translated, not just in English, but in other languages, has been understood to be an objective genitive, faith toward Christ. But in this NET Bible, they have consistently translated this phrase, both in Galatians 2 and in Romans 4, as a subjective genitive, meaning the faithfulness of Christ. You're not saved by your faith in Christ. You're saved by Christ's faithfulness. Now, some could argue that's, that's, uh, that's true to some degree. Christ is the one who holds us in his hand. He is the one who we, we persevere not by our power, but by his power. But look at the rest of the verse. It says, We're not knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ. This is a key passage for understanding the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. When you put your faith alone in Christ alone, at that instant His perfect righteousness is imputed to you, and at that instant God the Father looks at that righteousness you now possess and declares you to be just. That is the historical doctrine of justification by faith alone. But if you retranslate this phrase, that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ, it removes your volition, It removes your faith. It's not your faith anymore. It's his faith. That fits into lordship salvation, but it destroys the whole doctrine of justification by faith. And this is what is happening again and again and again throughout this country, is that people who are in positions of teachers, professors in seminaries, pastors in in many different evangelical churches are giving up the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This is the core of our salvation. If you're not justified by faith in Christ, you're not justified. Because we cannot be justified by our own works at all. Two weeks ago, I flew out to Southern California to be a part of the commencement exercises at Chafer Theological Seminary. And while I was there, the, I had a, time, a short time, not, never enough time, to spend in conversation with uh, Dr. Bob Wilkin, who's the president and founder of the Grace Evangelical Society. I've known Bob for about 20 years. We were both in the doctoral program together at Dallas Seminary back in the 80s. And Bob has done a fantastic job in developing that ministry and alerting people to what the issues are in understanding a free grace gospel. And so, rather facetiously, as we were putting on our regalia to get ready for a commencement, I said, hey, what's, what's the latest heresies out of Dallas? Meaning Dallas, Texas, not necessarily the seminary. And he said, well, he said, there's a pastor of a large, of one of the largest Bible churches, historically Orthodox Bible churches in Dallas, who is now 
uh, teaching that uh, we are not justified by faith alone. So it is, see, this is what's happening with this lordship gospel thing. Uh, it is infecting the churches, and eventually people are realizing that, that if you take translations such as this in this NET Bible that I'm uh, telling you about, when it first came out two years ago, I had a number of friends say, oh, this is really great. Now, I understand that when you've got a THM or a PhD from Dallas Seminary, you have four or five years of languages behind you, you don't look at things the way the people in the pew look at things. So we get all excited about stuff that, that would bore most people to death. And so I thought, well, this will be a good thing. And the first thing I did, because I knew who the publisher was, I emailed him and I said, who did the translation on this? And I got the list of translators and red flags were going off everywhere. So I ordered my copy and I started working through it. And I I identified about ten major theological disputes that I had. And in each of this, it reveals that the translators of these sections and those who wrote the notes were clearly lordship. And they have, I think, created a a real danger for a a number of people. And I'm amazed at how many uh, pastors and theologically trained people I know who recommend this uh, translation, and they haven't figured this out yet. But... That was one of the first things I did. And, uh, the sad thing to note is that all of the New Testament translators, all of the Greek men who did the translation, basically make up the New Testament faculty at Dallas Theological Seminary. So that just shows the orientation of how Dallas has shifted over the last 20 or 30 years uh, away from a free grace position and in sanctification away from a position of of, uh, of absolutes in the Christian life, that you're either in fellowship or out of fellowship. So these things, I know, get a little technical for a lot of folks, and the, uh, it stretches you a little bit, but you need to be aware of what's going on today. There are more dangerous ideas today. In fact, I was just talking to a good friend of mine, Dr. Randy Price, on the phone the other day, and I said, I said, Randy, we never would have believed when we were starting Dallas Seminary 30 years ago, how, how much division there would be among uh, evangelicals or just what we would call the basic Dallas crowd today. And he said, I, I know, I mean, 30 years ago, I remember one professor used to say, well, Dallas Seminary is so popular because it stamps out little rubber ducks. One guy looks pretty much like the next guy. And we, everybody believed pretty much the same thing. And that is not true today at, at all. So, and it's, and it's not just Dallas, it's across the spectrum in evangelicalism. Every year there are more different positions, there's more fragmentation. And the same thing is true as our nation as a whole. And this is what happens when people are living in the, in the cosmic system and when they're influenced by the cosmic system. Uh, arrogance reigns and arrogance produces division and divisiveness, everybody's got to come up with a new idea, everybody's got to come up with a new position, and it always leads to fragmentation. When you operate on, on arrogance in your soul, and you are divorced from God, and you're operating on the cosmic system, it will destroy your life. It will produce division in your life, it will produce fragmentation in your soul, and it is a clear path to misery. Now, you may find some pleasure and excitement and stimulation when you're on the frantic search for happiness. As uh, one uh, friend of mine once said, when he was doing some counseling, he said, I had a guy come into my, my office one day for some counseling. His life was, he felt he was out of control and things were pretty much of a wreck in his life. And he said, you know, I was just feeling rather facetious that day. And I said, well, what do you think would make you happy? And he said, boy, I would just love to take a vacation and and uh, go down to some some uh, uh, beach down in the Caribbean somewhere and uh, have a good party for about a week and lots to drink. And this guy said, well, if you think that's where happiness lies, why don't you take all your money out of savings and just go down to some island in the Caribbean and spend all your money on women and booze? And the guy looked at him and said, well, that really won't make me happy. Well, that's the point. 
But see, that's how you've been pursuing, and, and he made an excellent point to the man. He said, that's exactly what you've been doing, and that's why your life is so messed up, is because on the one hand, you think that you can find happiness by doing it your own way, and you just think God is some secondary thing that you bring in on Sunday, and occasionally you'll go to midweek Bible class, and until you recognize that you have got to be completely sold out to the importance of doctrine in your life, and complete obedience to the Lord and growing to spiritual maturity, you're never going to find happiness because somewhere in your soul you really think that you can find happiness somewhere else. And you have to wake up to the danger of that. Now this book is about the future, the revelation Jesus Christ provides. He is going to disclose the future so that we can live with the end in mind, live with the future in mind. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bond servants. So the subject of the main clause is God. This is the noun theos, which God, and here it is God the Father. This is the revelation that God gives. So the main clause is Indicated by this noun. This is the subject of the uh, clause and the subject of the verb gave. This is the verb didomi, D-I-D-O-M-I. It's in the aorist active indicative. That means that it's just a simple past. Simply refers to it as a past action. The technical term is a um, con- uh, constitutive aorist. It simply summarizes the action in the past, that God at some point in the past gave a certain body of information to Jesus Christ for the purpose of His disclosing that to His bondservants. Whenever we see this verb, didomi, we need, and where God is the subject, we need to remember that the emphasis is on grace. Whenever God gives, it's always a principle of grace. It's not based on who and what we are, but it's based on who He is and what Christ did on the cross. God has graciously provided revelation to us so that we are not in the dark. That's the idea of revelation is it enlightens us. It gives us information so that we know truth from error. And God the Father has provided this body of information so that we have sufficient Revelation. That means it's enough. We don't need to know everything that will happen in the future. This is one of the dangers of studying revelation and studying prophecy is you get into all kinds of speculation. And people love to speculate and try to figure out who the Antichrist is, like this guy down in uh, Groton who has written this book saying it's Saddam Hussein. But as we saw in our study in the first hour, First Thessalonians chapter 2 makes it clear that the identity of the Antichrist won't be revealed until after the rapture. So we can't know it today. You may have an educated guess, and some some people may actually be right, but they won't know it until after the rapture. But the giving of the Scripture is part of God's logistical grace for believers. It's available to every believer without charge. Any believer has the tools to get into the Word and to understand the Word at a rudimentary level because of the uh, teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. But God has also provided us with pastor teachers who can give us the information we need to grow to spiritual maturity. That's the purpose of the gift of pastor teacher is to be able to dig into the Word and to be able to communicate it in such a way that people can get information they could normally get and they're, they're able to grow to spiritual maturity. So it begins with revelation. God gives this graciously. The word didomi means to give, to grant, to graciously bestow, or to provide. So this is revelation that belongs to Jesus Christ, which God graciously provided Him. And the Him refers to Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ can't reveal anything unless the Father gives it to Him. So the Father gives this body of information to him uh, for a purpose. And the word there translated to show is the Greek word deknumi, which is an aorist active infinitive of purpose in this particular clause. The infinitive indicates this is the purpose 
of God's granting this to Jesus Christ. God wants us to know things. The word deignumi means to point out, to present something to the sight. Notice this, this imagery again of revelation, to enlighten, to show, to uh, see. This concept of vision is all present there. It is a visual demonstration of something. Uh, it means to cause to see, to exhibit, to display. And it's a metaphor of showing something by words, that is, to teach. So the revelation is given to teach something to his bondservants, that is, believers. This is not written for unbelievers, it's written for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the instant of salvation, you quit being a slave of unrighteousness, according to Romans six eleven to 13, and you become positionally a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this revelation is given for the purpose and that is to teach us by enlightening us as to the facts of the future, what will soon take place. And this is a crucial term, the things which must soon take place. Now, if you just read that in the English, you think that all that is being said is that this book is going to tell you about the future, things which must soon take place. And you think it's going to happen soon in terms of a relatively close uh, amount of time. But that would be misleading. This is not what this phrase means. In fact, this is an extremely uh, important phrase. It is not original to the writer of the Apocalypse. It was a word that originated in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, of course, is a chapter where Daniel interprets the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had about the future of the Gentile kingdoms. And when after, Dan, uh, after Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, he called in all of his soothsayers and all of his prophets and all of his uh, astrologers to explain to him what the dream was. They also had to tell him what the dream was. And none of them could tell him what the dream was, and they were all under the threat of death. And finally, someone remembered uh, Daniel. So they called in Daniel. And Daniel came in and says to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 28, However, after he had given the preliminary information to Nebuchadnezzar, he said, However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Now, this is in the section of Daniel that is written in Aramaic because it deals with the Gentile kingdoms. And a major section of Daniel is written in Aramaic. And the Aramaic is translated into the Septuagint by the exact same phrase that we have in Revelation 1.1. Ha de genestai. Ha de genestai. The ha is a relative a pronoun meaning things. Dei is a verb which means or is a word of necessity and uh, the noun of necessity. And genestai is the uh, aorist infinitive or passive infinitive of genomai, meaning the things which must come to pass or come into existence. So this phrase, ha dei genestai, is a technical phrase that comes right out of Daniel 2.28. King Nebuchadnezzar, this is what God has made known that will take place when? In the latter days. Now, he repeats that phrase again in verse 29. As for you, O king, while on your bed your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. Now, some of what was revealed to Nebuchadnezzar was taking place. Because as we'll see, when you look at the uh, image of Daniel 2, we know that the head of gold represented the kingdom of Babylon, of which Nebuchadnezzar was the head, in 605 to 539 B.C. So it was already taking place. But if you look at Daniel... Let's go ahead and turn to Daniel. We'll pick up a few 
additional points. If you look at that, the way that image is revealed, the focus is really on the conclusion, what happens to the image. It is not on the events of the image because, as we'll see, most of these kingdoms have already come into existence. And in Daniel 2.28, we're told that this will take place in the latter days. Now, the latter days is an eschatological term referring to the future. If the thrust of that image was in the latter days, then the latter days would have begun in approximately uh, 605 B.C., But that's not true. The latter days is yet future. So the thrust of this whole image is on what happens to the image at at the end. And this is uh, revealed uh, in verse 44. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. That's what takes place in the latter days. So, let's just review the history. The head of gold represented the kingdom of Babylon, which lasted from 605 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar took control until 539 B.C. 539 B.C., Babylon was destroyed by the silver kingdom, which is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. This is represented by the chest of silver. The Medo-Persian Empire lasted from 539 B.C. until 331 B.C. It was under the Medo-Persian Empire that the uh, Jews were told to go back to the land and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They were replaced They were defeated and replaced by the kingdom of Greece under Alexander the Great, which lasted from 331 B.C. until 146 B.C. At that time, we have the rise of the Iron Kingdom. This is represented by the uh, thighs of iron, and that is the kingdom of Rome from 146 B.C. until approximately, if you trace it all the way up to the demise of the Eastern Kingdom, the Byzantium uh, Empire uh, when it was defeated by the Islamic hordes in 1453 A.D. Then the iron and clay shows a mixture of elements of the former Iron Kingdom and new elements, the clay elements. This is the revived Roman Empire. This is the ten-nation confederacy that the Antichrist puts together during the tribulation period. So this is the image of Daniel 2. Now, at the end of the dream, uh, there was a stone that destroyed all of these empires. And that's what Daniel interpreted in verse 44 as the final kingdom, this stone that is not made with human hands, this stone that is uh, made by God in the establishment of the Messianic kingdom. It's what destroys all of the human uh, kingdoms. Daniel 2, uh, verse 45 says, Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. There's that phrase again. What, literally, it's what must take place in the future. And in the Septuagint, it uses the same phraseology of ha dei genestai. What will take place in the future. So this is what must take place. So when uh, Revelation begins with this phrase, it is a phrase that is saying that what we're going to see in Revelation is the culmination of what began in uh, Daniel chapter 2. But Daniel chapter 2 isn't the only place where we find this verbiage. We also find it in the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew 24, verse 6. We'll start at verse 2. Daniel 24, 2. Uh, Jesus says to the disciples, Do you not see all these things? Now remember, this is just a day or two before he went to the cross. After he had come into Jerusalem, 
And he's standing outside the, the temple and he says, Do you not see all these things, that is the temple and the temple grounds? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So the question has to do with the second coming, not the rapture. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, that is Christ, I am the Christ, real actually Messiah, and will mislead many. Verse 6, You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. Guess what phrase that is? Those things must take place. That is the same phrase we have out of Daniel chapter 2. Dei Genestai. Those things must take place. So again, this locates that in the future. Those events are located in the future. Jesus says that these wars and rumors of wars take place during that period designated by Ha De Genestai in Revelation. Now, Revelation 1, 1, we saw, uh, introduces it as saying this book is going to tell us about the things that must take place. Well, the first three chapters don't tell us about those things that must take place in the future. And we know that because we find the phrase again in Revelation 4, 1. After these things, and what we'll see when we get to Revelation 4, 1, is the rapture takes place at Revelation 4, 1. After these things, I, that is John, looked and behold the door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Now, this is the same phrase that we have in Revelation 1.1. But it's not the last place we find it in uh, Revelation. We find it again in Revelation 22.6. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants. Now notice, 22.6 is at the beginning of the last chapter of the book. Do you see the similar verbiage? The God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel. We have an angel sent in verse 1. To show, same verb, dekneumi, to his bondservants, same word, doulos, the things which must soon take place. So we have a bracket here. The bracket is between 4.1, which says, now we'll see what must take place, and 22.6, which basically says, we've seen what must take place. So the things which must soon take place are described and unfolded and revealed between Revelation 4.1 and Revelation uh, 22.6. That describes the things which must soon take place. Now we have to figure out what the soon means. The things which must soon take place. We find it at the end of the book. We find it at the beginning of the book. What, what does that mean? This is the Greek word takus. T-A-C-H-U-S. Now takus is an important word, and we'll run into this again and again, it's important to understand the doctrine of eminence. Takus provides something about the timing. First of all, the word can mean a very brief period of time with focus on the speed of an activity, that when something begins, it will happen quickly. In other words, there will be a quick succession of events once it begins. A woman may not give birth for nine months, but once she starts... Hopefully things will go quickly. Okay, that's the idea, that one event will follow in quick succession after another. The other idea that Takus can, can communicate is that it describes a time in which a, rel- a relatively brief span that f- follows shortly after another point in time. That's what we think of. If I left here and I said, I'll be back soon, 
you would think, well, maybe he'll be back in 15 or 20 minutes. But see, the other idea is that when I come back, the events associated with my coming back will all take place quickly. So that's the idea. If Jesus said, I'm going to come back soon, meaning a short time, it's been over 1,900 years. See, now a lot of people say, well, you know, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. But that's not what this is saying. This, the other idea, the idea of the events will happen in quick succession is a better understanding of the meaning of tachus. Incidentally, that's also the first or primary meaning of the word. So what we see here from the use of this phrase is that Revelation brings to a climax and close the events that are first revealed in Daniel chapter 2. These are the events that are associated with the bringing in of the kingdom. For example, in Revelation 11:15 we read, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. This happens just before the return of Christ. This is the, announces the destruction of the cosmic system and those who are aligned with the cosmic system. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. See how this connects back to the Daniel 2 passage. And then Revelation 20, verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the events that are spoken of in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the things which must soon take place are the events that bring about this kingdom, the establishment of the messianic reign of Christ and fulfillment of the Old Testament covenants for Israel, what we also refer to as the millennial reign of Christ. These are the things which must shortly take place. And then we read, And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. He sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. And the key verb here is the verb to communicate, from the Greek verb semino. And semino means to make something known, to communicate something about the future, or to explain something enigmatic. Now, some have related this to the noun for sign. Say, see, this is just a symbolic book, and you have to interpret it in an allegorical manner. And that's not what the word means at all. It simply means to communicate. And so we're told that he... he communicated it by his angel. And what we'll see is that Jesus Christ will appear to John. But it's also there's this emphasis that it's communicated by an angel. And even though the angelic presence is not always emphasized, it is there. Next time as we begin to look at this, I'll go to the Old Testament, and we'll see that in Exodus there is no mention of an angel when God gave the Mosaic Law to Moses. Nevertheless, Hebrews tells us that the giving of the Mosaic Law was mediated by angels. That just means that not everything was disclosed in Exodus, but angels were present. In the same way, we'll see that when Jesus Christ is revealing this information to John, angels are also present, and angels are also a part of that communication. In chapter 17, 1, and in 21, 9, Jesus communicates to John by means of angels only. At other times, Jesus Christ is communicating directly to John. But throughout all the judgments, there's always an angel associated as sort of a, a witness, as sort of a covenant witness to what is taking place. And so we will have to explore that and a tremendous amount about angelology as we go through our study of Revelation. But the point here is that there is an evaluation coming. Revelation is about the culmination of history and all the things that must come to pass before Jesus Christ establishes his kingdom. And as we saw in the first hour in our study on 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 27 and 28, 
then Jesus Christ will uh, put an end to all authorities and rulers and powers, and then he will give the kingdom to the Father at the end of the thousand years, and then there will be an end to all death and an end to the angelic conflict, and everything will be returned to uh, its position of being under the authority of God, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to look at the scope of, of what the scripture tells us from the revelation to Daniel back in uh, 586 B.C. and the subsequent years of his life through the information that our Lord revealed on the Mount of Olives and at other times during his ministry, as well as the information given to the Apostle John. We see that all of these things fit together in one coherent whole. Each uh, complements the other to give us a coherent picture of the future. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things, that we are indeed in a time of preparation and training ground to uh, be ready to rule and reign with you when the millennial kingdom comes. Father, we pray that you would also challenge anyone here who is perhaps unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny. Right now, if you are here this morning and have never accepted Christ as your Savior, this is your opportunity to do so. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone, simply to trust Him as your Savior. God the Father is omniscient. He knows the instant you trust in Christ as your Savior, and at that instant you are saved. You're, uh, you receive the imputation of righteousness. You're justified. You have eternal life, and you can never lose that. Father, we pray that you would not let us forget what we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.